You're listening to the First Baptist Church of Marble Falls, Texas sermon podcast. For almost 130 years, FBCMF has served the Marble Falls and the Greater Highland Lakes area faithfully through children's programs, youth activities, and adult discipleship. We invite you to join us each and every Sunday at 9 and 10.30 a.m. for deep fellowship, rich worship, and a spirit-filled message. Never miss an archived sermon by subscribing to our podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes. For more information about our church or to watch a video version of this and other sermons, please visit us online at fbcmf.org. going to introduce our preacher this morning, and some of you might wonder, where's Ross? Well, Ross is here. Um, in fact, Dr. Previn Vong was here as well, and they're both out visiting um, different Bible study classes right now. Um, they both kind of tag-team preached this morning in the first worship service, and, uh, and so they're talking about our spring, excited to share, um, that Ross has put together for our church with evangelism. And so he's here helping him do that this morning. Now, you're all wondering, now, wait, time out. How come we don't get to hear that as well? You will. Um, we're going to do that again in January. And so in January, um, Dr. Vaughn will come back, and uh, Ross and him will tag team in this worship service and then go visit uh, your Bible study classes. But in the meantime, we are blessed this morning um, to have our executive director with us of our Burnett Lano Baptist Association. I know that's a mouthful. What that means, it's really kind of simple. Um, if you break it down, our Baptist churches in Burnett Lano counties in our area um, come together to form an association, and we have an individual, Dr. Um, Brother Dale Hill, that's here um, to preach and to share with us not only what God's doing with our community but with our nation. Basically, it's a network. He helps network our churches um, in our counties as well as with our state and our nation. And so it's a major blessing to us to have him to, to be with us this morning, to share his heart. And so you're going to have the opportunity to hear him share what God's doing um, all around the world, especially in our area. And so would you please welcome to the stage, Dale Hill. Thank you, Todd. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. Well, Todd, uh, Todd did a good job sort of giving an overview of what our association is like. And if you've never heard the term association, it's an old term used by churches for hundreds, 150 years uh, that describes churches networking is the new term together to help all of the churches in that particular geographical region accomplish uh, the work of God in that area. Uh, I was invited this morning to, uh, to give an Advent sermon, but um, Ross wanted me also to tell you a little bit about our association, but I'd rather preach and, uh, and share with you and spend our time together in God's Word. So let me just tell you, there's a sheet of paper out there on a, on a table directly out of the uh, auditorium this morning with a lot of propaganda on it about what we do in ministry to individuals and churches and through consultation and so forth. Uh, I would encourage you to get that. Now, buried in that stack is a $100 bill. And I, no, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But if you have time, go back and, um, and get that. And there's some things on one side that tell what we do. And then on the other side are some things that are upcoming. Uh, and uh, you might be interested in some of those. What I would really like for you to do is look at that sheet of paper 
and you'll find about halfway down that we have reorganized our network into four teams. I've only been here a year and a half, and uh, as Ross can tell you, as our culture continues to um, become less and less inclined toward the Christian faith, uh, so do all the entities that are associated with the church. That has happened with our association. So it became necessary when I came on board to reorganize, try to bring some more clarity to what we do and how we proceed and how we measure our success. That's what you're doing in the church right now here at Marble Falls. So there are four teams out there. I would love to have your input on how we can make our association stronger through these four teams. If you're interested, uh, pick up one of those pieces of paper and uh, there's contact information all over it. Uh, all right, uh, so I was invited to give an, an Advent sermon. If you have your Bibles, let's find the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, first book in the New Testament, and we are going to find chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and we'll read together the first 12 verses from Matthew chapter 2. All of us have uh, childhood memories of Christmas, do we not? And uh, we always think about the toys, of course, and the candy and all the family. And, uh, and I cherish those memories. But as our culture becomes less and less inclined toward the Christian faith, it becomes more and more important for us to view things as big, as globally visible as Christmas through more than just the simplicity of a child's eye. Now, that does not mean that children don't understand Christmas. They certainly do. It's very important for them to have those memories. But as we grow older, it's important for us to look at the Christmas story and be able to, to um, uh, grab out of that story things that are really very important to us as adults in a culture that is like ours. So I want us this morning to look at some lessons that I've learned I want to share with you uh, hopefully you'll agree these are lessons that we all need to learn and accept and embrace learned from the wise men. Lessons learned from the wise men. If you're there at Matthew chapter 2, uh, say, I'm ready, preacher. All right. Verse 1, this is what the Bible says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judah. Uh, just a minute, I lost my place. In Bethlehem of Judah, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that it had, uh, they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place 
where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Lessons that we learn from the wise men. Um, I heard a, a great story, funny story about a family that was driving uh, during the Christmas season looking at all the lights. You know, we like to do that, and I'm sure you have done that in times past. And they were all in the car, and they were driving through one neighborhood after another when suddenly they came across a big, beautiful manger scene. Out in the front yard, all the lights, there was the typical manger scene. Suddenly, a little girl in the back seat, she says, Mommy, Mommy, she says, what does that mean? What is all of that? And the mother said, well, honey, she said, that's the manger scene. And you'll see Jesus over here and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and there is Jesus in the manger. Well, that seemed to satisfy the little girl. So they went on and they went to the next block. And suddenly they came up on this, this another major scene, sort of a, a Christmas scene. Three big camels and these ornately dressed men with just incredible gifts hanging off their camels. The little girl said again, Mommy, Mommy, what does that mean? And mommy said, well, honey, she said, those are the three wise men. They are looking for Jesus. And then a little time passed, and she said, well, they're not going to find him here. He's down the street. <laughs> so what do we find when we look at the story of the three wise men from Matthew chapter 2? Three things that I want to share with you very briefly uh, concerning the, this gospel story. Things that I think um, are important enough for us to latch on to and be able to make our way through the season with great confidence that this is not just a child's story. This is the gospel story to us presented in a very, very familiar way. First lesson, uh, I think the wise men teach us that God is bigger than your wildest imagination. God is bigger than your wildest imagination. We pick up in chapter 2, and in verse 2, we read these words, the, the Magi say to uh, the king in, in, in Jerusalem, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, um, that in itself is not a breathtaking statement. Um, somewhere right now in the United States, for example, there are Two or three little boys and girls under the age of 10 that are growing up and one day one or two or three of those children will be president of the United States. Right now they are in our country. They're under the age of 10. They're growing up somewhere and someday they're going to be president of the United States. But right now we're not looking for them. It doesn't mean they're unimportant but nobody's looking for them. We don't know their names. We're not looking for them. And yet here come the wise men and they're looking for someone who is going to be born king of the Jews. A little bit later on in this passage of scripture it says, for we have come to what? We've come to worship him. So their imagination is growing and they're understanding a little bit more of this child the more they make their trip and when they get there we've come to worship him. In a few minutes 
we're going to open the scriptures, or, or the three wise men are going to open the scriptures to the prophecy of Micah, which we read, and we're going to understand this is the Messiah. So already, the, the imagination of these wise men has been expanded greatly. Now, we don't know how they came to understand that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. We don't know that. There's a good possibility that they were familiar with the prophets, uh, the prophecy of Daniel. These wise men uh, probably came from a land of Persia, modern-day Iran, and they would have probably been familiar with the prophecies of Daniel. Daniel, after all, was the chief seer, one of the, one of the, the most trusted advice, advisors to the king of Persia. And they would have known that Daniel gave a prophecy in chapter 9 of his, uh, of his book that, and it includes a timeline of the birth of the Messiah. Now, that's possible. It is also highly possible that they were familiar with another prophet by the name of Balaam. Now, if Balaam does not ring a bell with you, you'll find his story in the book of Numbers. In fact, I'm going to direct your attention to the 24th chapter if you're interested in taking notes or reading with me. In Numbers 24, let me give you a little chronology. Moses is leading the nation of Israel toward the promised land. They're just about to reach the Jordan River. And across the Jordan River already, the reputation of this mighty nation and their God has preceded them. And so the king of Moab across the Jordan River is upset at what might happen to them like he should be. He's upset. So he hires Balaam, who is an, a non-Israelite prophet, a man whose heart is far away from God. He hires Balaam to pronounce a curse on the nation of Israel as they cross the Jordan River. Moab doesn't want to be conquered. King Balak, the king of Moab, doesn't want to be removed from the throne Last thing a person in power wants is to lose his power, right? So he hires Balaam to pronounce judgment and curse on the nation of Israel. Well, Balaam, as God often does, is used as a tool by Almighty God to pronounce not a curse, but blessing after blessing after blessing on the nation of Israel. Well, you can imagine how King Balak takes that. He's upset that his prophet has gone against his direct order. And so he says, ba he says Balaam, I'm going to give you one more chance to prophesy a curse. And in this last opportunity to pronounce a curse, we read this tremendous promise from Balaam. I'm in verse 17 of Numbers 24. Balaam begins by talking about what's going to happen to the nation. And then he says in verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. For a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter rise out of Israel. Now to translate that, Balaam is saying, you don't know what's coming, but what I see is going to happen in the future. Now, this is 1,200 years before Jesus is born. This is in the day of Moses. And Balaam says, at some point in the coming history, there will be a coming somebody that will rise out of the nation of Israel. And there will be a star that announces his arrival. And he will come with all the authority of heaven and earth. A scepter will be in his hand. Isn't that what Jesus said? All authority is given to me on heaven and earth. 
And Balaam says, this man is coming. Now, you say, well, how does that connect with all the, all the Bethlehem story? Balaam came from a little town right on the Euphrates River, just across from the nation of Persia. So it's very, very possible when, that, when, these, wise men, uh, when, when these wise men were studying the scriptures, they had the prophecy of Daniel and they had the prophecy of Balaam. And so when this star appeared, they put the two together and they knew exactly what was happening. This, this star guided these wise men that we read about in Numbers chapter 24. Now, over and over, the Bible baffles our curiosity about how things happen, why things happen, and when things happen. We don't know, for example, how this star got the wise men from Persia to Jerusalem. We don't know how it stood over the very place where Jesus was. We don't know how it guided them on that little six or seven mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem where Jesus was. We, don't, the, we just don't know. There have been a lot of explanations or attempts to explain it. There's some people, scientists even, who think maybe this was a supernova. Maybe this was some um, conjunction of planets coming together. Maybe it was a shooting star. A lot of people just decide this is a miraculous light that God did one time in history for one particular purpose. The answer is we just don't know. But can I challenge you not to let that be a, a side street for you. Don't let that be a distraction for you. Because a lot of times we get off on these things that have no real spiritual value at all and they undermine our progress in the faith. You understand what I'm saying? In fact, let me read to you a great quote from a man that I admire greatly. His name is John Piper. Uh, used to pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Pennsylvania. And here's what he says. I, I risk a generalization to warn you. Now he's talking to his people. People who are exercised and preoccupied with such things as how the star worked and how the Red Sea split and how the manna fell and how Jonah survived the fish and how the moon turns to blood are generally people who have what I call a mentality for the marginal. Now, he, he loves his people, but he's saying it's, 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 it's possible for us to make a big thing out of a little thing when it really shouldn't be all that much of a big thing. Then he says this, For you do not see in those kind of people a deep cherishing of the great central things of the gospel, the holiness of God, the ugliness of sin, the helplessness of man, the death of Christ, justification by faith alone, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the glory of Christ's return, and the final judgment, they always seem to be taking you down a side street. Now, here's what we do know about the star. That star was doing things that a star can't do on its own. It was guiding the wise men out of Persia and to the place where Jesus was born. And there is only one person in all of biblical thinking who has the power, to, the power over the manipulation of the stars, and that's God himself. Amen? Only God can do that. Only God can do that. No wonder there is worship on the minds of these wise men. They come and they worship him uh, there at, uh, at, 
at Jerusalem and, and, and at um, Bethlehem. Now, I want to read a verse of Scripture to you that will blow your mind. This is in the New Testament book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, Paul is thinking about how big God is. Remember, we're talking about God being bigger than your wildest imagination. And in the book of Colossians, Paul says in verse, one, verse 15 of chapter 1, he, talking about Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and listen to this phrase, and in him all things hold together. Now if you just think about that for a moment, just freeze frame that phrase. Imagine the wise men kneeling at the cradle of a child, or more likely, uh, kneeling in the home of an older toddler, for by this time they may have traveled weeks or months. And they do not understand what Paul reveals, but in this child's power, in this child's hands, in this child's direction, are all the things that are happening throughout the entire universe. All things are created by him, for him, and in him all things hold together. I'll tell you something that'll make you squirm in your seat. Do you know at this very minute, the earth is spinning on its axis. It spins on its axis about roughly a thousand miles per hour. Some of you probably know this. And then, of course, the earth spins around the sun and it spins around the sun while we're going around in a circle for a thousand miles an hour. It spins around the sun at a speed of 67,000 miles an hour. If you're at the North Pole, South Pole, a little slower, right on the equator, you got a great ride. 67,000 miles an hour. Now, our solar system, including the sun, the earth, and all the rest of the planets, is spinning around in our Milky Way, our galaxy, at a speed of 517,000 miles per hour. Beginning to do this a little bit. <laughs> Our galaxy is spinning through the universe 1.2 million miles an hour. And according to scientists, we don't know how much more there is out there, and we don't know how far it goes. But Paul says God is bigger than your wildest imaginations. Because that tiny baby that was born in Bethlehem, he created all things. And he is before all things. All things were created for him, and he holds all of it together. That is an incredible thing. I think we ought to give God a great big hand. That's amazing. Amazing. Well, there's another lesson. Let's go back to the Gospel of Matthew. Not only do we learn that God is bigger than our wildest imagination, but another very important lesson for us to learn is that God is also bigger than our darkest sin. He's bigger than our darkest sin. 
Now, for just a moment, I want you, not, not outside or audibly, I want you to just to think about some of the darkest things in your life. Must don't go gloomy here, but just we all know we've sinned. Think about that. And then translate from, from there, just translate into this thought. God is bigger than that. God is bigger than that. Now, one of the things that's always intrigued me about this story of the Magi, the wise men, is the big wrong turn they took there in Jerusalem. And you think about this. Do you think God sent that star for them to come all the way from Persia just to Jerusalem when Jesus was in Bethlehem? Did God know Jesus was in Bethlehem? Everybody say yes. Yes, he did. So why did they go to Jerusalem? I think I know. These Persians were on about a thousand mile journey, depending upon the point of origin from which they came in Persia. Could have been six or seven hundred, could have been a thousand miles. So they have been traveling, not just overnight, they've been traveling for days upon days, weeks upon weeks, months after months. If you look at what Herod did in killing all the children two years and under, they could have traveled this distance for several months, maybe even a year or more. And they come across mountains, dangerous mountain passes, deserts, rivers to cross. And they're crossing enemy territory. Rome owned all of that land across which they had to come. It was a journey of great courage and great faith, honestly. I mean, let's give them credit. They did all of that on faith. And then they get to Jerusalem and something changes. Something happens. They make a wrong turn. Now, how do I know that? Because they come to Herod and they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, that question in itself is interesting because all this way, they didn't ask anybody. They followed what? The star. By the way, when they stop and ask for directions, this is why some people think they're called the wise men because they're the only men in recorded history that ever stopped and asked for directions. In fact, somebody talking about this said, had there been three wise women, they would ask directions first. They'd have gotten there on time, helped deliver the baby, cooked the casserole, cleaned up the stable, and there really would be peace on earth. But I don't know about all that. I digress. So they, so they, make, a wrong, so they make a wrong turn in, in, the, in the journey. Right at a critical point, they're just a few miles from, from, from Bethlehem where Jesus is. They've come all this way at such a great risk, such a great expense, and then they make a mistake. And you say to yourself, well, gosh, it was just a little mistake. They, they hit Jerusalem instead of Bethlehem. I want to challenge you cons to consider whether or not that was a little mistake. Because if you read the rest of the story, in fact, if you, if you look down just in verse 16, you, say, you see that the Bible says, when, then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, you know, they go home a different way. They're warned in a drink. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under. If infanticide is a tragedy in your mind, and it ought to be, that's what happened when they took the wrong turn. Now, the point I'm trying to make is that all of us take wrong turns in life. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that we've all sinned and we've come short of the glory of God. But it also says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of that sin is death. 
And Paul is trying to make the case that Jesus is the reason for the season. The reason Jesus came was not just to give us a great story about God or a little child named Jesus. Jesus did not come, listen, Jesus did not come just to restore social justice in the world, although that's a great goal. Jesus did not come just to try to achieve world peace, good goal. Jesus did not come just to clothe the naked or heal the sick. Jesus did not come just to give us a good example of how to live life. All of that is good. Jesus came, the Bible says, for one purpose and one purpose only. Because we have a problem. All of us have a problem. We have made wrong turns, just like these wise men. And you say, well, this is just personal for me. Is it not a tragedy to you in your mind that one person dies and, and has an eternal separation from God? That's a tragedy. Jesus came because he wanted to be born in this world to die for this world. I often say if Jesus ever had a motto, it would be the words of Mark 10, 45. You can look it up. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You can just extract from that phrase, from that sentence, two verbs. He came to serve and he came to give. In fact, the Apostle Paul says something even more dramatic in, in Galatians chapter uh, 4. Paul says this, describing the ransom of Jesus. I'm reading in verse 4 of chapter 4 in Galatians. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, I've been in the ministry for a long time, long enough to know that when I read things like this or say things like this, someone is going to say, well, preacher, you can say that because you don't know me. You can say that Jesus came to save all people for, for all the wrong turns they've made, all the sin in their life. But the truth is, preacher, you don't know me and you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You know, and that part is true. But would you at least give me credit enough for knowing that Jesus said what he said and I believe what he said. And what he said was, God is bigger than all your mistakes. Isn't that good news? That is good news. I often tell this story when Karen and I um, were fairly uh, newly wed. We we had, we, we had bought a, an old, we sold our, we bought a house, we, bought our, we sold our house, and we took that money and we bought an old house in Greenville, Texas. We were going through seminary in those days, and uh, we were going to remodel this old house, one of those two-story houses, you know, with a wraparound porch, and everything was wooden and everything, and had high ceilings and wooden floors, and on the walls, the walls were all wooden, wooden sheetrock, and, and they had a a, uh, a wallpaper with the cheesecloth behind the paper, you know that, and all the tacks. And, and we were taking all that stuff off, you know, trying to get it back to the original and, and, and redo the house. Uh, on one afternoon or evening, Karen and I were working. She was in one room, and I was working in an old bedroom. And I got through with all the bedroom, all the walls in the bedroom, and I opened up the closet. And uh, closets in those days are not 
they were not very deep, not very wide, just enough to hang a few clothes in. So I, I got my little ladder and I started from the top and as I reached up to pull the paper off of the wall, as I did, I discovered that behind this section of wall, there wasn't wood. In fact, it was just about a two foot by two foot opening. It led somewhere. It was a secret passage. I felt like I was in Narnia. I, wa- <laughs> I thought, man, this is great. And so I climbed up another step or two and I looked down that hole and about two feet past the entrance, there were two presents. There was a, a little box, looked like it come from a department store. It was wrapped in white paper. And there was one on top of it wrapped in pink paper, bows and all. I came down from that ladder. I said, Karen, Karen, come here quick. I was thinking maybe we found $500,000 or something. I didn't know. <laughs> we sat down in that old bedroom with all the stuff around us, and we, and we started asking ourselves these questions that, that you're asking right now. What was in it? Who was it to? Why didn't they come and get all that kind of stuff? And, we, and I said, well, you first. I handed her the pink one, opened it up, and and then I opened up the red one. In my little red box, there was a, there was a, uh, uh, there, there was a, or in the white box, there was a red smoking jacket. You know, so I, I put it on. I put it on, and we sat there. She, she unwrapped hers, and hers had a little negligee in it. And so she, well, no, that's none of your business. <laughs> so... So we sat there looking at those gifts, and of course, all the questions were just popping like popcorn. Who did this? And how long had they been up there? We knew that the lady who had owned the home had been sick for many years and unable to live there. Did she do that? The children who would inherit the home started fighting about the stuff, and, and they, they may have put them there. Maybe there was a fight. Who knows? But the big question that hangs over that was, why didn't someone open those gifts? Now, church, if I could just, I mean, you can do the translation. The Bible says that God sent his indescribable gift, which is Jesus, to all of us because only he can do what needs to be done in our life to get rid of all the mistakes we've made, all the wrong turns. If God is bigger than your wildest imagination, believe also that God is bigger than your worst mistake. The only difference between the Bible story and that story in the, in the home where we found the, the, the gifts is that your name is on the one at Christmas. He came for you. God so loved the world that whosoever, you're that whosoever. You're that whosoever. God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, the third thing that I think we learned from the the story of the Magi. What have we learned so far? Well, the Magi teach us God is bigger than our wildest imagination. He holds the entire earth, indeed the entire universe in the palm of his hand. Isaiah 40 talks about how he weighs the mountains like drops of sand. He's named all the stars and calls them by name. He's also bigger than our worst mistake. It doesn't matter what you have done. God is not mad at you. 
he loves you and he sent his son to take care of all of those mistakes in your life and then here's the third thing it just sort of slides right in there God is greater than your greatest need um, I read in verse 9 it says about the Magi after listening to the king now what did the king say the king had called all of the uh, scribes and the priests together to ask them where is this child going to be born where's the king of the Jews going to be born they said in Bethlehem so the king calls in the Magi and he says listen when you when you go and worship him you come back and tell me exactly where he is so that I can worship him too but they get they get to Jesus and then they're warned in a dream not to go back to Herod because Herod has these evil intents not only for the Magi but for all of the children all the families in in the nation and so we learn from Scripture, we learn from the star, we learn from this dream that God is faithful. Listen, listen to me. Even though these magi had failed God, they, they, they got to Jerusalem, and here's what happened. They let their logic take over. I mean, after all, it was logical, was it not? They knew a king was going to be born. They get close to, to Israel, and they decide that must going to be happen in Jerusalem, the capital of the city. And what better place in the capital of the city than the palace where all the power is? And so that's where they went. And they left their faith aside, and they went on their own intellect. Sometimes a very dangerous thing for us to do. But even though the Magi had made a mistake, God is still faithful. He provided this dream to tell them not to go back into that pathway of danger. Now, can I just tell you this very simply? You're still thinking about that sin, and maybe God can't forgive it. I'm telling you, he can. If there were one sin that were greater than the grace of God, Jesus would still be in the grave. But he's not in the grave, is he? He rose out of that grave, and he sits on the throne of God with all power and all authority, and the reason he is there because, is because he can take care of our greatest need. He can absolutely take care of our greatest need. This is God's design for all of us, that he's brought into our lives some point, some person, some, something of direction, something of conviction to remind you there is a purpose behind this story and there is a solution to your greatest need. That's what the Bible is all about in this story. And it's also God's will for every one of you to be brought to the foot of Jesus and to kneel in submission and claim him as your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. You know, sometimes we, uh, we look at these stories and we think, well, that's just a child's story. That doesn't have anything to say to me because all we remember is, is what we've read and there's no digging deep, there's no really questioning it. We sometimes think about walking by faith, but that's not really faith, it's just or spiritual laziness on our part sometimes. The wise men tell us something that is truly worth remembering. God is bigger than your wildest imagination. He's bigger than your greatest sin. He's bigger than your greatest need. I want you to have the best Christmas this year of your life. Let me tell you one story and then I'm done. Because it illustrates the invitation that I'm about to extend to you. An elderly father 
realizing that his life on this earth was about to come to an end, decided he had a problem. Didn't know who was going to inherit the mansion, family mansion. There were just two sons. He didn't know how to divide it between the two sons. And so he said to the sons, I'm going to give each of you $100, and I want you to buy something that you think will fill up that castle, fill up that mansion. So he gave both sons $100. They came back in a week, and one son brought in as much hay as $100 could buy, and he spread it all throughout that mansion. But there were still hallways that, were, that had no straw, no hay. And uh, so the father said, I don't think that's good enough. He asked the next son, what have you brought? And in brought this son case after case after case of little candles. And he placed one little candle in every room, and it filled the mansion. I want to tell you the light of the world can make a difference in your life. The light of the world can fill up your life like nothing else in this world. Everything else is just straw, hay, and stubble. It's all going to burn up. But at the end of our life, someday we will stand before God and he will ask us, what have you done with the gift that I gave you? The gift that I gave you. The gift that I gave to you. Did you stick it up on that shelf? Hide it behind a facade of whatever? You've been listening to the First Baptist Church of Marble Falls, Texas sermon podcast. Never miss an archived sermon by subscribing to our podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes. For more information about our church or to watch a video version of this and other sermons, please visit us online at fbcmf.org.